0: today. I will say, Melinda, she kind of turns on some lights up here that help me see a little better and make me glow. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glowing now. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, Susan. Are you going to talk about the different kinds of covenants? Am I going to talk about the different kinds of covenants? I don't think so. Like the new and old? Right, right. You know, that's interesting. Um, No, I'm not going to talk about whether it need to be. But I will tell you this. And actually, this is one of the things that I pulled out when the thing was 11 pages long. And I was like, oh, no, that's not going to happen. So it was one of the things I pulled out uh, about covenants. Uh, Whenever God ratifies a covenant in the Bible, he does it with Abraham. He does it with Moses at Mount Sinai. And he does it through Jesus. It's all him. I mean, Abraham literally was like unconscious un- unconscious when God ratified that, that covenant with him. Uh, and so in ancient times, when a covenant was made between two parties, but it, it fell on the one party, the person who was responsible for the covenant, if it was one party's responsibility, ha- also had the right to annul that covenant. And so uh, in God's case, where, you know, then the new covenant is in Jesus, um, he you know he has the right and did in fact a null is probably the wrong word but he has replaced it yes fulfilled it uh, is maybe the best way to put it um, so uh, does that does that answer the question okay any other questions yes connie 34 34 what are the acts that lead to death in in the case of of hebrews when he talks about that that's a that's just generally sin that sin left unto itself the, the wages of sin is death the payment for sin is death number 26 the good things that are already here the good things that are already here i will talk about <laughs> but it's just the blessings of the new covenant but uh, that's that's what it's referring to any other questions? You have one, Linda. You are not. You just don't want to ask it. it just hit me. Um, do you think that um, the, the first covenant, God felt that was all they could handle at the time? And, and he may have known then that he was going to have to rescind it and... Oh, he did know. Yeah. It, was, it was, in fact, so one of the things said, I'm going to say today, this was God's plan from the beginning. God, God has been working out his plan of redemption even in, in Genesis 1. It's evident that... Yeah, well, it was. I'll say, I'll say two things in, in, in answer to that. One is that it has always been a plan of redemption. So, uh, and, and Jesus, and there's something else I'll mention today Jesus, God, Jesus came in the fullness of time. At just the right time, Jesus came. And there are a lot, we could go, we could spend a lot of time talking about why that was just the right time. It's amazing. I mean, any earlier and the gospel couldn't have spread any later, and the temple was gone. I mean, you know, it it was historically, apart from any theology, the exact right time for Messiah to come. Um, Having said that, then, but his plan of redemption began with creation. And so this is part of his plan of redemption, working its way through to Christ. And he was committing to his people and in Christ's redemption, Christ's sacrifice goes backwards and forwards. And Paul talks about at great length that, that salvation has always come through faith, that, that Abraham was justified by faith. And, so that, and, and the author of Hebrews will talk about how those under the old covenant are saved by redemption in Christ Jesus. Never knew who he was, but they had faith in a coming Messiah, and, and their salvation came through that. Um, so... Um, You know, having said all that, God was speaking to his people. God was communicating to his people. God was covenanting with his people in a way that made sense to them. And animal sacrifice was the way that happened. Yeah, yeah. that, That was the way in which he could say, I am covenanting myself to you. And this is the only way that your sins can be temporarily taken care of not eternally, I can't have com- complete relationship with you, I can't live, you know, uh, in, in communion with you uh, because this system is not completely effective, but someday, someday, Jeremiah 31 tells us, um, it will be, and someday has come. Does is that is help? Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, any other questions? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much um, for the promises of Jeremiah 31 uh, that have been fulfilled in your son, uh, that we may know you and that we may be known by you and that you are our God and we are your people and we stand forgiven before you. Father, what a blessing, what an amazing and awesome reality that is. Never let us forget it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we didn't quite get finished last week, and so we are going to start real quickly with finishing up with those things. And and there, this whole section of Hebrews 7, 11 through 28, was all about the superiority of Jesus and his priesthood. Uh, and the first, verses 11 through 19, those first verses, talked about how Jesus is a better hope, or he has given us a better hope. The previous covenant, the Levitical priesthood, the previous covenant, previous priesthood, couldn't achieve perfection, as the author of Hebrews tells us. And by that, it means it could not reach God's desired end of an intimate relationship with his people. Uh, And then in verses 20 through 22, it talked about how Christ's priesthood has a better basis, which was by divine oath, that God named Jesus a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek by his own oath. The Levitical priesthood came through a command of God, and a, an oath of God is a better basis for that priesthood. And then in verses 23 through 25, the author is going to talk about how uh, Jesus is a better help. He is a permanent priest, not a temporary priest. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them, there have been many of those priests. Levitical priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So the contrast being made here is between the Levitical priests who could serve obviously only till death because once they were dead... They could no longer be a priest. It was a limited priesthood. It was limited to their literal lifetime, earthly lifetime. By contrast, Jesus lives and reigns forever. Therefore, his priesthood is permanent. It's eternal uh, priesthood. So because his priesthood is eternal, because it is permanent, he can save completely those who come to God through Him, there is no limitation uh, on His mediation between us and God, between God's people and God. He brings complete and forever salvation, not the temporary forgiveness um, of of the former covenant of of the Levitical priests, um, but forever. Uh, and and though that that sort of uh, forgiveness needed to be achieved over and over and over again. And Jesus is an eternal priest. He died once for all. Doesn't ever have to happen again. Only one time. And that's forever in both directions, as I just mentioned. This is one of my favorite quotes. I even wrote it in the notes for you. This, this is just such a, such a profound thought, I think, from Dr. P.E. Hughes. He says, do you notice how theologians go by their initials? Why is that? I have no idea, but... Maybe I'll be AC keyser someday. Who knows? <laughs> like I'm a theologian. But I love this thought. This is a wonderful thought. We could not hope to draw near eternally to the eternal God through a dead priest. It can't happen. We have a living priest, we have an eternal. Now, what about the intercession? He lives to intercede for us. We really, I'm not, I'm not copping out on you. We we don't have time to go into this deeply. Please know, though, that the, the, the idea that Jesus intercedes for us in heaven is taught elsewhere by Paul, particularly in Romans 8. And the idea is that one of, that is that one of Jesus's ministries is to speak to God, or or pray to God, if you prefer that word, on our behalf. Uh, and our author doesn't explain it further. He just leaves it there and figures everybody understands that. However, it is at least possible, particularly based on the context of Hebrews, that one aspect of that intercession is prayer for, uh, that believers would be able to persevere or prayer for believers who are tempted to turn away from the faith, for, uh, tempted to have lack of perseverance. Then in verses 26 through 28, he gives us both a summary of the argument thus far, and he begins to look ahead and transition to the next argument. Oh, Melinda, that was, that was very good. Uh, so It's just like Julie. I turn around and it's there. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the, uh, for the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made priest who has been made perfect forever. So it's a summary in that he tells us that our sinless great high priest has offered the perfect sacrifice on our behalf once for all. It need not be repeated over and over again like the temporary forgiveness of the Levitical system. It is a better priesthood and it is a better hope. It is not bound by the weaknesses of the Levitical priesthood and its sinful priests. Uh, But then he also is transitioning here to to an upcoming theme when he talks about Jesus being exalted to the heavens because he's going to begin talking about Jesus' ministry extends beyond the earth. The the, uh, Levitical priests ministered only on earth, but Jesus' ministry extends beyond earth and into heaven, into the heavenly, most holy place. So we have arrived now at this point to the the middle point of our author's exposition on Jesus as our great high priest. They call it the the great central section of Hebrews. And we're at the middle of that argument, beginning with chapter 8. And so I just wanted to give you a little retrospective at this point. That uh, exposition actually really began... In chapter 4, if you can remember back that far, verses 14 through 16, when our author said, we have a great high priest. Uh, And then in chapter 5, he began to talk about Jesus being appointed as as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. But then he broke away because he realized that this teaching was deep. And I think you probably would agree. And he knew that they would need to be more spiritually mature to hear it. So he broke away to exhort them and say, stop eating baby food. It's time for you to grow up spiritually. And he gave him that exhortation and that warning in uh, Hebrews 5.11 through 6.20. Then in verse 7, he came back and began to talk about Melchizedek again. The priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, and that was uh, verses seven, or verses one through 10 of chapter seven. But then he transitioned from there to talk about the superior, superiority of Jesus. Uh, and Melchizedek fades into the background as he begins to talk about Jesus as our great high priest in the second part of chapter seven. So now we've come to this transition where he says we have such a great high priest who has ministered, who is a minister in the heavens in the first two verses of chapter 8. This is the midpoint of the argument. From here, and this, this argument, this, this exposition will last into chapter 10, he's going to talk about uh, the superior offering of Jesus, how what Jesus had to offer, his own blood, was superior to the blood of bulls and goats. In verses uh, eight in, excuse me, in, in chapter eight, verses three through six, he introduces that idea of the superior ministry of our heavenly high priest. And then in eight seven through thirteen, he talks about the superiority of the new covenant over the old. And then beginning in chapter nine and all the way through verse. 18 of chapter 10, which part of which we won't get to today, he's going to talk about the superiority of the new covenant offering of Jesus. And then he closes in verses 19 through 25 of chapter 10 with this rousing sort of climax of the whole argument saying, We have a great high priest who takes us into heaven with him. So let's begin uh, in chapter 8 with the first two verses. It says, the point of what we are saying is this, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. So these verses look both backward and forward. They look backward in the sense that, that uh, they talk about uh, Jesus' appointment, the son's appointment as our great high priest, which is a... Um, a topic that he's already discussed. And and they look forward because he's talking about or looking forward to his upcoming discourse on Jesus' superior heavenly service. That's going to, the next few verses are going to be all about how Jesus ministers in heaven, and that is a superior service. Um, But then in these verses, he reintroduces, uh, In I think the next slide will have it, yeah, he reintroduces this idea of Jesus at God's right hand, where it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So God is talking to Jesus and saying, at his exaltation, sit at my right hand. Now we've had, Psalm 110, by the way, is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And we've heard Psalm 110, 4, a number of times where God swears on oath to Jesus that he is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. But he's also used Psalm 110.1. He used it way back in chapter 1. He alluded to it in in chapter 1, verse 3, and then he quoted it in verse 13 of chapter 1. There in chapter 1, the author's point was Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. Now he's bringing that theme back in again to talk not so much about Jesus' exaltation, although that is true, but now he's going to pinpoint the location of Jesus' ministry, which is heaven, the true tabernacle, the one on which the earthly tabernacle was copied. Uh, And so he is ministering in heaven, and that makes his ministry superior to that of the Levitical priests. They were earthbound in their ministry, and it was limited by their humanity. The heavenly tabernacle, the original heavenly tabernacle, uh, on which the earthly tabernacle was patterned, is the dwelling place of God. It is the most holy place, in essentially the throne room of God, to which we have been encouraged to draw near, to which we have been encouraged even to come boldly. And that is where Jesus is. Now, in verses 3 through 6, the author's going to tell us that this our superior high priest has a superior ministry as well. He says every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one, Jesus, also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. He was not a Levite. For there were, are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry of Jesus, uh, the ministry Jesus has received, is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. Boy, these are amazing verses, just just amazing. So he begins by saying something that every high priest does. Every high priest offers gifts and sacrifices. He is setting up a contrast between the gifts offered, the sacrifices offered by the earthly high priests, and the one offered by Jesus as the great and eternal high priest. And his contrast is based on their locales, on their location. The Levitical high priests served in the earthly tabernacle, the portable worship center um, that the Israelites used until the te- while they traveled through the wilderness and until the temple was built in Jerusalem. The temple, by the way, very much patterned in the same way. Uh, and they offered sacrifices according to the law. Jesus, as he has already mentioned, is exalted to the heavens. Therefore, his ministry and his covenant are superior to the old one. The tabernacle and later the temple, if you've ever, and I don't know how many of you were in Exodus when when I I taught that. Oh, my goodness me. I mean, we have one detail-oriented God. That thing was built to exacting, detailed standards that you just go, why? Why that? Here's why. Because it is intended to be patterned after a reality that exists in heaven that is the very dwelling place of God. And the, the temple, or the tabernacle, and later the temple, was the place where God's presence dwelt on earth. Do you realize now, he dwells in us. And that's a personal dwelling that Moses could, could only dream of having. He couldn't uh, have, have experienced that because of, Christ had not yet come. So the reason it was built to such detail was because it was intended to be a copy of the heavenly reality, the dwelling place of God. But it is at best a shadowy, imperfect copy of that true dwelling place in heaven because it is tainted with sin. And those who built it were sinful. But Jesus and his covenant is built on better promises. And he's about to detail what those promises are uh, with a quote from Jeremiah 31. But I want you to notice, however, he has woven in an idea here, uh, a new idea, that idea of a new covenant. And then he's going to drop it and he's going to weave it back in again because our author never says anything haphazardly or unintentionally. He knows he's going to weave it back in again so in verses 7 uh, through 13 uh, with this long quote from Jeremiah 31 he begins to talk about the inadequacy of the old covenant for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant no place would have been sought for another But God found fault with the people and said, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, He has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. So if you could just go back to the top there and kind of scroll through as uh, I talk about these. Thank you. So he begins by talking about the inadequacy of the covenant in verses 7 and 8. And essentially what he's saying is the need for the new covenant proves that there was something wrong with the first one. If it would have been effective... There wouldn't be a need for a new one. And indeed, there was something wrong. Uh, Something had gone wrong in that covenant. It could not provide the full and intimate relationship that God desired to have with his people. It could not bring about perfection, as our author says. And that is in part because of the sinfulness of the people. Their own sinfulness prevented that but it is also in part because the method of dealing with their sin was ineffective it was inadequate it was incomplete it was temporary the old covenant was always intended to be temporary until the time that Galatians 4 4 speaks of. and I am so sorry you're gonna have to go back to the end I shouldn't have made you go back yet Uh, because the next slide after the Jeremiah 31 will be Galatians 4.4. That's my bad. And now it's not moving for you. Oh, I hate it when it does this. Galatians 4.4 says that in the fullness of time, God sent his son born of a woman born born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law. That at the perfect time, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. That old covenant was always meant to be temporary until, in the fullness of time, God could take care of our sins completely and eternally through his his son. Uh, Now, but then it says that, that God found fault... It says, but God found fault with the people. Actually, literally, that says, for faulting them. And then it gets really technical and complicated, and it talks about date of case and some other kind of case, and it depends on which one it is. And I don't want to go into all that because it just makes your head spin, trust me, and it gives you a headache. Suffice to say that when it says that God found fault in the people, it could mean that God found fault in the people. But it could also mean that God found fault in the covenant. It could be both. And actually both are true. However, because our author is primarily talking about the insufficiency of the covenant, that is probably what he found fault in was the covenant. So then he begins to tell us these better promises of Jeremiah 31. This promise of a new covenant with God, one that will help his people, allow his people to achieve perfection, that word teleosis, not meaning that we will be sinless on earth, but that it will achieve God's desired end of intimacy between himself and his people, and it will achieve our complete eternal redemption. Uh, So these promises... This promise, first promise is that of a new covenant. But then God promises that his laws will be placed, they will be engraved on our hearts and in our minds. It won't be an external thing. It will be an internal thing. God promises that he will have an intimate relationship with his people. He promises that all of his people will know him and be known by him all of which is possible, you see it says for, or somewhere it says for, all of which is possible because of Jesus, because of what Jesus has done for us. It is only possible because God has forgiven us in Christ. Uh, Of this new covenant, P.T. O'Brien says, it is different, the new covenant is different qualitatively in that it is graven on the human heart, not on tablets of stone. And it is a covenant where, the sin, where sins are effectively forgiven. So that makes then the old covenant obsolete. The new covenant replaces the old as it was insufficient. That was God's plan from the beginning. To have Jesus come. Jesus was never God's plan B. He was always. It's been one plan of redemption. From the beginning of time. The old covenant. Is not not a bad thing. That was God's covenant. With his people. Making it a good thing. It was the best method he had. Of communicating with his people. At that time. And it was a foreshadowing of Jesus and what he would do completely. But the coming of Jesus changed all of that. With Jesus, a new and better covenant was made, and it allowed us to have a relationship with God that we could not otherwise have, a Jeremiah 31 relationship. Now, if you step back in time for a minute and think about the original audience that heard these words I want you to think of of how hopeful this would have been to them, because many of them were disheartened with the faith and, and the persecution that being a believer in Jesus brought. And they were considering a return to Judaism. And so what our author is doing here is showing them, clearly showing them, why that makes no sense, to return to something that is obsolete and disappearing. He is wanting to bolster their faith in Christ and encourage them once again to persevere, to be confident in their faith in Christ. Well, now in, in beginning with verse, or beginning with chapter 9, and then all the way through chapter 10, 18, the author is going to talk about the son's better sacrifice and the bases of that superiority and he's going to weave these bases it, it isn't just this basis this basis and then this basis he's going i see you laughing over there that he's going to weave them in and out so so this idea of the place of the offering in heaven being superior he talks about in chapter 9 verse uh, 11 and then again in chapters 23 and 25 and then again in chapter 10 verses 12 and 13 the basis of the blood of the offering of Christ's blood being superior and more effective of that of bulls and goats. He's going to talk in chapter 9, 12 through 28 about. And then the eternality, I don't even know if that's a word, the eternality of the offering, that it was once for all, that it was one offering good forever in both directions. He's going to talk about in chapter 9 verses 25 and 26 and then the first 18 verses of chapter 10. So verses, 9, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 9 talk about the tabernacle and its worship. And we're going to do this really quickly um, because the author doesn't go into detail and uh, I gave you some background information on this. But verses 1 through 5 talk about, they describe the tabernacle and what was in the tabernacle. There it is. Good work, Melinda. Thank you. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and was an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room were the lampstand and the table and the, uh, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, sometimes called the holy of holies, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. So if you'll go then to the next slide, which I hope is fairly clear. This is, yeah, not really clear. Um, This is in your uh, study at the end of the study. He begins by calling this tabernacle an earthly tabernacle, and he is keeping that contrast between the place where offerings was made in the tabernacle being earthly and the place where Jesus' offering was made being in heaven. And he's keeping that in the foreground so that we remember that that is part of what makes Jesus' ministry superior. One thing I will tell you, because if you looked at this, you saw that the altar of incense is right there on the outside of the curtain before you get into the Holy of Holies. And he, our author in Hebrews said that that was in, it's kind of like an incense. Does anybody else hate incense? Oh my gosh. It just it gives me a headache. Okay, why does anybody, oh, because they want to cover up the smoke pot, yeah, that's why they do it. Okay, so, and, it's a very 70s smell, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, at uh, that point, that was a very, very highly theological thing to say. Um, he places it inside the Holy of Holies. Actually, the placement of that is, and, and yeah. And Carol's leaving. That was a great time, yeah. She, she told me, she told me she had to leave early, that she wasn't, if she may be offended. That may have been very convenient, uh, but anyway. Um, it's ambiguous. Some, some writers place it inside the Holy of Holies, some place it just outside. Obviously, our, our author uh, places it inside. The most important thing in the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant, the, the uh, top of which, or on top of which, God's presence dwelt. And uh, that was in the Holy of Holies. Uh, and um, yet... God's people, even though his presence dwelt on that ark, uh, God's people were cut off from him. And that's part of what our author is saying here. He's going to go on in verses 6 through 10 to talk about the worship there. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room. So in that holy place, that first place to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So if you could go back one for me, Melinda, thank you. Um, So, oh no, don't go forward one. I'm so sorry. You're doing great. I'm the one that's messing up. There we go. So you see that tent there. That was what the first slide was up but uh, But there was an outer court as well where that big sort of fence thing or tent was. And you see a big altar there. All of the sacrifices took place on that altar outside. And the people could go there. But the people could not go into the holy place. And the only priests could go into the holy place. And only one priest could go into the most holy, holy place. So sacrifices were made in that outer court daily and yearly on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, which we call Yom Kippur, which is in September, um, on that Day of Atonement, a bull would be sacrificed for the high priest's sins and those of his family, and then a goat would be sacrificed for the people, for the sins of the people. And then on a second goat, the high priest would lay his hands and confess the sins of the people and, and lay on that goat the sins of the people, and then it would be taken out into the wilderness and released. It was the scapegoat. It was the scapegoat. That's where we get that word. And then the high priest would take the blood of the bull and the goats into the most holy place and sprinkle that blood there to atone temporarily for his sins, his family's sins, and the sins of of the people now in that outer room in that holy place that first room um, the priests would carry on their duties and, and our author talks about that as well only priests could go into the holy place and they had different duties they replaced the bread there were 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes they lit the lamps they kept they trimmed the lamps they took care of the lamps that were there But they were the ones that performed those acts of worship. The people were left out of all of that aspect of worship. They were cut off from it. Only the high priest could enter the most holy place. And then only on the day of atonement. Now our author's point here is not so much what the duties were as the dailiness of them. They never ended. They had to be repeated over and over and over again, which points to the ineffectiveness of the covenant itself. Now, in verses 8 to 10, he says this was a lesson that the Holy Spirit was teaching. And and then, again, it gets very complicated and technical and gives you a headache. So I'm just going to give you kind of the Reader's Digest version. Under the Old Covenant, there existed no means for the people to enter the presence of God. And in fact, that first room, that holy place, served as a barrier between God's people, most of whom were not priests, and the presence of God. And so when he talks about what the Holy Spirit uh, was teaching, he's saying, and it says, as long as the first tabernacle was standing, I'm going a little off the reservation. Sorry, I saw you guys are looking at your... I'm trying to speed up a little bit here. When he talks about as long as the first tabernacle was standing, there was a barrier, that word tabernacle could also be uh, translated room. And so what it probably means is that first room, that holy place was a barrier between God's people and God's presence. And as long as that was there, there could be no relationship, intimate relationship between God and his people. So here's the lesson that the Holy Spirit was teaching, and I'm going to read to you what Dr. Guthrie said, because it's a lot more cogent than me. The outer room of the tabernacle, the holy place, therefore illustrates the whole era managed by the old covenant. It was a time in which the general populace could not draw near to God because provision had yet to be made for their consciences to be cleansed. When it talks about consciences being cleansed, it's talking about a moral awareness of good and evil. The people knew they were sinful. They knew that there was no permanent solution to that. In fact, the old covenant was nothing more than a constant reminder of their own sinfulness and that the system they had couldn't completely cleanse them and allow them to draw near to God. Therefore, something more was needed in order for that to happen, in order for them to have a Jeremiah 31 kind of relationship with God. Well, now the author's going to turn and talk about the superiority of the son's offering for sin in verses 11 through 28, which we probably won't finish, but hey. Um, and in verses 11 through 12, he's going to introduce... Uh, that, that superiority. He says, When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So Christ appears, and by the way, in that sentence, Christ is the first word, making it emphatic. And, and when he appeared as high priest of the good things that are already here, of high priest, of all those blessings he bought, he, he, he bought with his own blood, of all those things that we now have, those Jeremiah 31 blessings of being, being able to draw near to God and having a relationship with God and he is our God and we are his people and he knows us and we know him. He was the high priest of all those things. He achieved <laughs> them. Uh, And again, the greater tabernacle is heaven, where Jesus was exalted at God's right hand. Uh, And the greater offering is Jesus' blood, his own blood, which is greater than that of bulls and goats. Now, he didn't literally carry his blood into the throne room of God. (laughs) Here it is, I'm going to sprinkle it now. That is just a very poetic and eloquent way of speaking of his death on a cross, that when he shed his blood on that cross, we were eternally atoned uh, our sin was eternally atoned for and we had obtained eternal um, redemption so he's going to continue to talk about the superiority of the blood of Christ which is which makes him our mediator in verses 13 through 15 it says the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer that's a completely different thing I'm not going to talk about that sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean So again, beautiful words here. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus' death accomplished what animal sacrifice could not, complete eternal redemption, by which we are free to serve the living God and be in, live in communion with him. Atonement under the old covenant was temporary. The atonement of Christ is eternal. Because of this, he is our mediator, the guarantor, as our author said previously, of our salvation. Now, the next part that's about wills and covenants um, is really tricky, and I, I do not want to rush through that. I think we only have, like, chapter 10 next week, so uh, we will get to that, um, but if you would turn, please, uh, to the conclusion. And... Um, If you'll go through for me, Melinda, and go back to Jeremiah 31. Um, So I think you can tell, even if we leave this last part off, that, that our author has said several times that Jesus died once for all. That Jesus is our full and final sacrifice. No other sacrifice need be made. Because Jesus opened the way to God. He opened access to God. We can now draw near... To God with confidence, even boldness, our author tells us. Because of Jesus, we are completely and fully forgiven. Because of Jesus, we can know God and be known by Him. Because of Jesus, God's law and His will are written in our minds and on our hearts. And consequently, Because of all that, we have been set free to worship and serve him. But what I don't want you to leave here without seeing is that all of this was completely and 100% God's doing. Take a look at Jeremiah 31 again and and see how many times God says, I will. Can you go, it won't let you go forward? There we go. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. There's one more. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. God says, I will do this. I will do this. And I will do this. And the benefits come to us. God loves us, God pursued us. And God has provided everything necessary for our forgiveness so that we might live in intimate relationship with him through his son. Can I get an amen to that? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you have done it all. Your son has paid it all. And therefore, all to you we owe. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks, ladies. Sorry to put off. I got to get through next week because then after.